Our Father and our God, as we come to this place to hear your word, we recognize that the word proclaimed apart from receptive minds and hearts would be a waste of breath and nothing but noise. And so we pray, Father, that in these moments you will open our hearts and minds to receive your word and to respond to it, that we would recognize that you are present in this place, witnessing the proclamation of the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for the past 10 years, I have been a pastor here at, at the Village Church. And my primary purpose in those years has been uh, to teach the Word of God. Now before that, I spent uh, 30 years as a professor at uh, West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. And during those years, my primary purpose was to teach people how to teach. It was during those years that the Lord led us into ministry in a local church, and, and so for much of that time I spent as well teaching the Word of God in the context of that local church. And then before that, I was in school. I had both undergraduate and graduate school to pursue, uh, to pursue and, and when I was involved in that kind of schooling, my, my primary purpose was to prepare for what I would do for the next, oh, 30 years or so. And before that, I was in high school, and, and when I was in high school, my primary purpose was to try to figure out what I would do for the rest of my life. But before that, my primary purpose was to drive my mother crazy. Now, I don't know that I succeeded in driving my mother crazy, at least not completely crazy, but I think I got pretty close on occasion. One of the things that characterized our relationship was the discussions that we had. Some would call them arguments. We can use the word discussions, but they were often infuriating for my mother because they led her to believe that I would not become a teacher, but instead I would become a lawyer. A lawyer because I seemed to pretty much have an argument for everything. Now here's where you can insert your favorite lawyer jokes. I decided not to include any this morning. My sermon will be offensive enough to enough people not to offend lawyers unnecessarily. So my mother thought I would be a lawyer, but not just any lawyer, a defense lawyer is what she envisioned, because whenever there was an issue that could be prosecuted, and when I was a youngster, there were plenty, plenty of things that I would do wrong, I always had an excuse. I always had some reason that I was not responsible. Uh, there was always some basis for which I ought to be acquitted. Now, all of this happened pretty much before I became a Christian, when I was a teenager. And since then, God began his work of, of sanctification. And of course, as for most of us, that has been a work in progress. It, it, he has made me less argumentative. Now, some of you might say, not enough. Gene might especially say, not enough. 
But if you knew what I was like back then and what a pain in the neck I was to my parents, you would be thanking God that there has been at least some progress. The bottom line in all of this is that I learned that I shared in what was one of the key features of human nature, our nearly limitless capacity for excuse-making. I may have been pretty good at some things, but I was really good at excuse-making. In my e-connections this past week, I even gave this human propensity a Latin name. No more homo sapiens, man the wise. No, no, no. It was homo excusionatem factorum, man the excuse maker. That's who we really are. Our series is the pure gospel. It's a study of the book of Romans. Let's recount Paul's thoughts so far in our study. He began to introduce the gospel back in chapter 1, verse 16, when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for er to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how Paul introduces it, but then he launches into an interlude in this book in which he establishes the need for the gospel. And that interlude concludes in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, which are parallel verses to the two verses that I just read. They say essentially the same thing. But what Paul does is in that interlude, in, the, in between those two verses, he establishes the sinfulness of humanity. In our last message in this series, we looked at Romans chapter 1 in the last verses of the chapter, verses 18 to 32 which describes this downward spiral of sin. What happens with the human suppression of the truth about God as revealed in nature and the human refusal to glorify God and give thanks to him. And it also describes the judgment of God on such, uh, such suppression of truth. And the judgment of God was that God gave them up he gave them up to additional sin. In other words, he judged them, judges them by letting them do what we want. He gives them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He gives them up to dishonorable passions in which we substitute unnatural things for the natural functions. He gives us up to a debased mind uh, to think what is good is evil and what is evil is good. And there are all kinds of specific sins listed in, in this section that we had studied. Idolatry, sexual immorality, including homosexuality, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip. How'd that get in there? Slander, God-hating, insolent, haughty, boastful, evil, inventing disobedience to parents. I threw that in there because there are some children here, actually. In the, in the, no. Foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, restlessness, and then the approval of evil. Now, with that kind of list and with that kind of explanation of the sinfulness of humanity, the reaction of the vast majority of people would be that they would start to act pretty much, much like I did with my mother. I didn't do that. Not me. 
And if I did, now I'm not saying that I did, but if I did, I had a really good reason to do it. That's how human beings react to a description of the sinfulness of humanity that Paul engaged in at the end of that chapter. They say, we're not like that. We're civilized. We're sexually appropriate. We're married. We're not adulterers. We're not idolatrous. We're not greedy. We're not evil or envious. We haven't murdered anyone. We don't hate people. We do love people. We give to the poor. We, we go to church. We don't hate God. We even go to synagogue. We give to the poor. And we don't gossip. That's the objection that human beings have when that lists of sins are described as illustrative of the moral disintegration of humanity. Well, chapter two is Paul's response to that reaction. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. There's debate about chapter two, by the way, among scholars. Uh, does this apply to Gentiles, sort of moral Gentiles, or does it apply to Jews? Some see Gentiles in verses 1 through 16, and some see Jews in verses 17 to 29 because Jews are mentioned explicitly in verse 17. Others see Jews in the whole chapter. But as I study the chapter, I think it doesn't really matter. If the shoe fits, put it on. It will fit Jews and Gentiles depending on which excuse each one decides to use. And it deals with those excuses. It deals with those who say, we're not like those pagan sinners. And there are two categories of excuses that people tend to make. There, are the, there is the moral excuse. Those who say, no, 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 we're really good, we're good. And then there is the religious excuse. No, we have this special relationship with God. So let's take a look at what Paul says about each of those excuses. The first one is the moral excuse, we're good. Chapter 2 begins this way, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's kind of a remarkable way that Paul deals with this objection. He doesn't allow the, the quote-unquote moral person to get away with his supposed goodness. Uh, and he doesn't tell them either that he hasn't fulfilled God's higher standards. He instead says, look, we'll take the very judgments that you hold against other people and we'll hold those same standards up to you. And even by your own standards which are lower than God's standards, even by your own standards, you'll be found wanting. You can't even measure up to your own standards. You condemn yourselves. That's the first thing that Paul says. Then verse four, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? One of the most profound misunderstandings of human beings is how we regard the patience of God. Most people are getting along pretty well in this world, and they believe that they're blessed by God. They assume that their great blessings are, are because they've, they've earned them. They're being pretty good, at least most of the time, at least good enough. That's the general perception of most human beings. 
Jesus, speaking of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, says this in Luke chapter 13, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, Jesus' point was that our way of asking that question is entirely wrong. The question is not why God somehow lets down and allows others to perish, but rather why he has spared us, we being the sinners that we are. If we could understand how sinful we are, we, we could understand that the soldier should have killed us or the tower should have fallen on us. We should be dead in hell this very instant. That we are not in hell is an evidence of God's tolerance. He has not yet confined us to the punishment we deserve. God's tolerance should lead us to repentance before it is too late. Boyce goes on to say, the reason we do not think often of God's tolerance and patience is our insensitivity to sin and our reluctance to turn from it. Arthur Pink says, how wondrous is God's patience with the world today. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot, and God himself openly despised. It's truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who brazenly defy him. That's the first thing that we find that Paul says, actually the second thing. They condemn themselves, and then they presume upon the patience of God. And in so doing, then they store up wrath against themselves. Verse, verse 5 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every uh, human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality." Now, the remarkable thing about Paul's argument is that the very people who regard themselves as good moral people are, by their very moral actions, actually storing up wrath against themselves. They expect that they're storing up all kinds of perks. It's just the opposite. Boy said, I think of this man as storing up a great hoard of gold coins placing them in an attic above his bed where he thinks no one will find them and where they will be safe. He keeps this up for years, amassing a great weight of gold, but one day while he is sleeping and oblivious to his danger, this great weight of gold breaks through the ceiling of his bedroom and comes crashing down onto his bed and kills him. He thought of his wealth as salvation but it was his death. Paul then in this passage lays out two courses, one leading to judgment and the other leading to salvation. He says, 
about persevering and doing good. They'll receive glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Glory and honor and peace will be the result of of doing good, he says. Then he says, self-seeking or disobedience, unrighteousness will lead to wrath and indignation. He says, tribulation and distress will be the result of, of doing evil. So the question that we all then think of is, is Paul laying out a true a path to, to salvation that is based on works? The answer is yes, he is. If you persevere in doing good and seek glory and honor and immortality, you'll receive eternal life. And doesn't that contradict the gospel? Well, no. He said if you did it, you'd get eternal life. He didn't say that you could do it. How many people have done it? How many? None. And that's the point Paul ultimately comes to in chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. Paul's argument regarding good works establishes the gospel. The gospel, you remember, concerns Jesus Christ. And Jesus did persevere in doing good and seeking glory and honor and immortality. And he's the only one who did so. And that's why faith in his works is the only way we can experience eternal life. In that sense, salvation is by works, not ours, but the works of Christ. And then there's the work of the law. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Ultimately, a law will judge everyone. There will be the explicit law that has been given to the Jews, which the Jews were so proud of, but even for those who are not Jews, even for Gentiles who do not have the law of God, there is an implicit law in everyone's heart. The work of the law, it said, is on the heart of the Gentile. They have an implicit sense of right and wrong. Whatever the law it is, that law will destroy the excuse of the one who claims to be a good moral person. So you see, dear friends, the moral excuse is, no, we're not like that. We're good. Paul says, no, you, you are not good. You are self-condemned. You judge others, and by your own judgment of others, you stand judged. And not only that, you presume on the patience of God. God is patient, desiring that you come to your senses and repent of your sin. You refuse to do that. And he says, because of that, you're storing up wrath. You think you're storing up assets, but instead you're accumulating liabilities, which will eventually bury you. And finally, you're condemned by the law. As a Jew, the law of God given through Moses passed down through the generations, condemns you, but even for you Gentiles, you have the residue of moral motions in your hearts. You know right from wrong, and your own implicit internal heart will condemn you, so the moral excuse fails. But then there's the religious excuse. 
The religious excuse, we have this special relationship with God. It's, it's first of all, a religious privilege. Paul says in verse 17, but you call yourself a Jew. The Jews claimed this special relationship with God. We could also make the same statement if we're Christians. We go to church. Those who claim to have some special relationship to God based upon religious practices, we go to church. The, the excuse of the Orthodox, they believe the right doctrines, they attend a good church, they may even be members of that church. They take the sacraments and they do the ordinances and they give tithes and they give offerings. You trust in those things, Paul says, and you are in trouble. The fact that you're in a church doesn't make you a believer any more than being in a garage makes you a car. The religious privilege doesn't hold up. Then there's the law's accountability. Verse 17 continues, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you are yourself a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These are a list of religious things that were peculiar to Jews as the chosen people of God. They had the law, they would boast in God, they knew God's will, they had this list of, of the privileges of religious people that are included in this passage. Guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructor of the foolish, teacher of, of children. Not only being a religious person, but they're doing religious things. They enjoy religious privileges, will not that will not get you into a right relationship with God, however. Paul then says in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here the religious person is held accountable to the religious principles he or she espouses, just as the moral person was held accountable to the moral principles he or she used to judge others. In this case, it's the law of God. For the Jew, it's the Ten Commandments. For the Christian, it might be the Sermon on the Mount or the Golden Rule. In any case, the law will condemn them. With respect to the Ten Commandments, Boyce says this, we should not think that we have kept the, this commandment against stealing just because we have not forced our way into another person's home and walked off with his possessions. We steal from God when we fail to worship him as we ought, or when we set our own concerns ahead of his. We steal from an employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable, or when we overextend our coffee breaks or leave work early. We steal if we waste company products or use company time for personal matters. We steal if we sell something for more than it is worth. We steal from our employees if the work environment for which we are responsible harms their health or if we do not pay them enough to guarantee healthy, adequate standard of living. We steal when we borrow something and do not return it. We steal from ourselves when we waste our talents, time, or money. Then there's the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, Boyce says most moral people set themselves or see themselves in this description in the Sermon on the Mount. They think of themselves as meek, as merciful, as pure, as peacemakers. They imagine that they actually thirst for righteousness and are even sometimes persecuted because of it. But who really embodies these characteristics? Is it anyone you know? Hardly the only person who has ever really embodied them is the one who spoke them, Jesus Christ. He was gentle in spirit. He mourned for sin, not his own, his others. He was meek, merciful, and pure. He alone embodied righteousness, and he suffered for it. And then there's the golden rule. Boy says, is, is that the golden rule, the part by which you judge others and by which you want to be judged? Have you always treated others exactly as you have wanted them to treat you? Have you never been impatient with them, never gotten angry with them unjustly, never accused them falsely, never taken advantage of another's weakness? The golden rule accuses you as it must if it is truly the summation of the law which is what Jesus teaches. There is one more card the Jew has to play, and that has to do with the covenant. What about circumcision, that, that covenant sign? For us Christians, it might be baptism. And Paul says in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as, as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter his praise is not from man, but from God. Jesus says the sign of the covenant is worthless if you don't practice the covenant. The sign is only a physical representation, you see, of an inward spiritual transformation. Circumcision is of the heart. Baptism is by the Spirit. When Paul uses that argument, he redefines the very nature of religion, and he redefines the very nature of what it means to be Jewish. Paul does not say, Boyce says, since he's dealing with salvation matters, that one does not have to be a Jew to be saved, but rather that one has to be a true Jew to be saved, which, as he points out, is not a matter of external criteria such as the possession of the law, descent from Abraham, or circumcision, but of conduct which flows from spiritual changes within so, dear friends, the most significant religious practice won't save anyone without the corresponding change of the heart which that religious practice signifies, whether it's circumcision or baptism or even like the Lord's Supper. Religious excuses fail, just like moral excuses fail. Religious privileges get you nowhere. The law holds you accountable, whether it's Moses' law or the law as Jesus describes it, and even the covenant is worthless if it doesn't flow from inward transformation. Excuses, excuses. Moral, religious, both dead ends. Now Paul demolishes those excuses, how does he do it? Well, he does it by preaching the law. 
really, preaching the law. It's the missing link. Paul's primary purpose is to preach the gospel. We've already seen that. But he doesn't preach the gospel like a salesman. He begins by proclaiming the sinful nature of humanity. Not just in one or two verses, but he does it in two and a half chapters. The wrath of God is revealed on all human beings because of truth suppression. All kinds of adjectives and adverbs are used for these people, all people, wicked, godless people. Paul establishes that argument in chapter 2 by preaching the law. He preaches the justice of God's judgment according to the law. All people are condemned by the law. Jews and religious people are condemned by the explicit law in their scriptures. Gentiles or non-religious people, even pagans, are condemned by the law, which the works of which are written on their own hearts. So he establishes by the law of God the sinfulness of humanity. Preaching the law is the missing link in contemporary Christianity. And it's one reason, or one reason that that happens is we really don't want to offend people told you I didn't want to offend lawyers today. But we don't really want to offend anybody. So we try to stay away from preaching the law. The preoccupation of the contemporary Christian is with a selective use of the New Testament. Churches like to proclaim themselves as New Testament churches, spending very little time studying the Old Testament and applying the Old Testament. And the net effect is that Christians are ignorant of the law and they have aversive reactions to the law. They hate the law of God. Do you hate the law of God? Most Christians don't have the slightest affection for the law of God. But then if we went back into the Old Testament and looked at Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, oh, how I love your law. Oh, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111 and 112, your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Verse 131, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delight. Paul didn't feel about the law the way most Christians do. Paul's feelings were more like that of the psalmist. Listen to what Paul says about the law. In Romans chapter 7, a passage that we'll eventually get to when we get to Romans 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He says in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. You see, Paul is not reluctant to preach the law, even if the law is offensive. So Paul, you see, would have flunked out of most of our evangelistic training programs. But there's Jesus. Jesus has a different view, doesn't he? There's the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Verse 16 says this, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, in sales terminology, this is a rollover. This is exactly the question that anybody wanting to lead somebody to Christ would love to have asked. He asked Jesus for the product that he's selling. 
If Jesus were a salesman, he'd be thrilled. He would simply say, all you need to do is believe in me. But how does Jesus handle the rich young ruler? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. What? Jesus begins by offending this potential customer. Why are you asking what is good? Do you think you have the capacity to do anything good? Only one is good. And then he preaches the law. He says, keep the commandments. <laughs> Jesus knows no flesh will be justified by keeping the commandments, but he, he doesn't say that, not yet. He knows this guy isn't ready to make a decision. A decision to trust Christ for him would be just another good thing to do, to earn a place in heaven. So Jesus doesn't want him to make a decision on that basis. Jesus doesn't want a decision maker. He wants a convert, a real convert, a convert who's convicted of sin, a convert who's regenerated by the Spirit of God, then who makes a decision. And so verse 18, he said to him, which ones? <laughs> and Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus lists four of the Ten Commandments, one from Leviticus 19, and then one that Jesus indicates is the second greatest commandment. That's what he offers. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? He's clearly clueless about his own sinfulness. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Give up everything, Jesus tells him. Man couldn't do that. He owned a lot of stuff. So Jesus used the first commandment to condemn him. You shall have no other gods before me. Evidently, this man had other gods before Yahweh. Hmm, how do we react to that? Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard, isn't it, to enter the kingdom of God? Well, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Isn't that the question? Who then can be saved? Everybody has possessions. All of us are rich in some sense. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Only, only God. Only God. So Jesus preaches the law. And when he preaches the law, the only thing anybody can do is just simply cry out to God. Cast oneself on the mercy of Jesus Christ alone. But again, Jesus, like Paul, would flunk out of our contemporary evangelism training programs because he wasn't afraid to offend the person 
who really needed to be offended, which is pretty much all of us, isn't it? Because unless you preach the law, there's no gospel. The book of Romans is about the gospel, but Paul spends two and a half chapters helping us to understand that apart from our recognition of the absolute sinfulness of our humanity, will the gospel be at all intelligible? Do you see that? So that's what Paul does. The moral excuses fail. The religious excuses fail. Human beings are unalterably sinful by nature. And only when we understand that will we finally come to cast ourselves on his mercy and understand the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Heavenly Father, help us to come to that place in our own hearts and lives where we are simply relying completely and entirely upon the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension for our salvation. And if we are to be offended, let us be offended so that we might cast ourselves on his grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.